Let's join in prayer once more. We come to you, Heavenly Father, to thank you that you're a God who speaks. You are not silent. You have not left us without a record of the things that you want us to know and act upon. And we thank you that you spoke as you did through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Redeemer. Bless us as we hear his words this morning and think about the things that he said, that these things might dwell in our hearts and bring forth much fruit and rid us of all unbelief. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, it never ceases to amaze me, and maybe you too, that in the world's eyes, a Jesus is such a strong and vocal supporter of so many causes. I'm sure you've heard people say, for example, that because Jesus never rejected anyone on the basis of their sexual orientation, that he would have welcomed and supported the changes proposed in the same-sex marriage debate we had six years ago. But not only that issue... Apparently he also approves of many other social changes and many other more causes that you could care to name. In this false presentation of Jesus, it is his gentleness and compliance that the world often notes. And from these the assumption is drawn that Jesus never got angry, never criticised anyone, never had a different opinion for, with anyone and in the end never stood for very much at all. Well, I hope to show you this morning from the first 12 verses of Matthew 16 how wrong these assumptions are. For here, this morning, we see that Jesus did criticise others, that he issued some very stern warnings, and most of all, he certainly stood for something. In the last few chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we've reached this turning point in the ministry of Jesus. The crowds have continued to follow him from place to place, but they're really only wanting to be fed by him and healed by him and see his miracles, while others, especially the religious leaders of Israel, are clearly opposed to his teaching and are now more than ever openly opposed to him and beginning to plot to eliminate him. Two weeks ago we saw his ministry to the crowds continuing across the border with a further feeding miracle of the hungry and slowly but surely we are coming closer and closer to another major turning point in his ministry and the gospel when he will turn to the twelve and ask them directly who do you say that I am? But before we reach that summit there are these words of Jesus to encounter in our text this morning Words spoken to Jesus by the religious leaders and then by Jesus to his disciples in Magdala, the place Mary was from, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So back in Israel and we hear these two conversations happen along three lines. 
First we see in verses 1 to 4 how Jesus had to confront the demands of naked unbelief. Our text begins with the Pharisees and Sadducees working together towards a common goal. Now we see this union of two religious groups a few times in the Gospels and it deserves some comment. Though these two groups are quite separate in their respective beliefs, they put aside sometimes those differences in order to combine their talents to together achieve a larger goal. It's not that they were as far apart as Liberal and Labor in our context, but more like when Labor and the Greens vote together. Something unusual but also known to happen. So this combined selection of Pharisee and Sadducee, of religious leaders, come to Jesus demanding proof of his messiahship, saying, show us a sign from heaven. Come on, just give us one. Give us a sign. Now in making this request, it appears that somehow their memories had recently been wiped. I mean, Jesus had just performed two miracles the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. If ever there was a request that was a complete waste of time and effort, well, this was it. Especially so when we note that they would not have believed the sign anyway and were not the least interested at all in Jesus' response. Matthew makes that clear to us by telling us three things. For a start, verse 1, that their purpose was to put Jesus to the test. This was not a friendly test. This was suggested in order to make Jesus look bad, to embarrass him, to shame him, to hopefully disprove him in front of the multitudes. Then notice Matthew repeatedly tells us, verse 1, 6, 11 and 12, that this is a joint approach from his enemies. And by this that Matthew is telling us, nothing good is going to come from this. Nothing good is happening here. These two groups have come together because they have a sinister agenda. And then also we should remember that Matthew's already told us what happened. The last time one of these groups, the Pharisees, asked Jesus for a sign after Jesus had been casting out demons. And the Pharisees had said then, he cast those demons out by Satan. That's where he gets the power from. And Jesus knows all this. So it's no surprise, in verse 2 and 3, his response is a stinging rebuke telling them that they might be able to see the signs of the weather patterns around them. But they are blind. They are completely blind to anything that God was doing in the world. You can read the signs of the weather in the morning and the signs of the storm approaching, but you cannot see what's right in front of you. Now this is a great irony because Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. They would make great weathermen, he says, but incredibly terrible theologians. 
And to say that to the religious leaders of Israel of that day was incredibly significant and sharp. Listen to what Calvin says. Jesus, therefore, asks them why they do not recognise the kingdom of God when it is manifest by no less clear signs. For this showed quite clearly that they were too devoted to earthly and transitory interests and despised what concerned the heavenly and spiritual life. But Jesus gave them one concession. He didn't wipe them off completely. As verse says, the only sign he would give them would be the sign of Jonah, specifically that as Jonah was three days and three nights swallowed up by that great fish, so he would spend three days and three nights swallowed up by death in the heart of the earth and rise again. This was a double-edged sword for both Pharisee and Sadducee, as William Hendrickson explains for us here. What a sign this death and resurrection would be for the Pharisees who were constantly planning Jesus' death with no fear that he would ever be able to conquer death. And what a sign it was for the Sadducees who didn't even believe in the resurrection. That would be the sign given to them that he would indeed be and was the Messiah. So Jesus had to confront the demands of naked unbelief. Then secondly, he had to, the warn, he had to warn the disciples about false teachers. In verses 5 to 7, you'll note, you'll note the exchange between Jesus and his disciples where following up what had been demanded by the religious leaders, he was warning the disciples about these religious leaders. He and his disciples are by now going to return to the other side of the lake by boat and when the disciples hear Jesus mention you ought to be on guard against the dangers of the leaven of the Pharisees, they somehow think he's talking about bread and they'd forgotten to bring bread for the journey. Now, this failure to understand what Jesus meant is understandable to a point. Jesus was using the term leaven in a metaphorical sense, not actually talking about leaven, but talking about influence. He still had on his mind this recent engagement with the Pharisees and Sadducees and so he spoke a warning to his disciples about the teaching and the spiritual character of these religious leaders who were popular among the people and apparently were popular in the minds of the disciples. So it was hard for them to take in that Jesus was actually saying that they ought to avoid their influence. That is, their unbelieving approach to him. Avoid it. And Jesus chose to use that image of leaven on purpose. For just as leaven does its work silently and secretly as it rises with the dough, so too was the influence of the teaching and attitudes of the Pharisees. It was evil mixed with truth. It was all disguised in outward piety, as we read in Matthew chapter 23. It was attractive on the outside, 
but deadly on the inside. It was to be avoided at all costs. So we come then to know that rather than being one whose mantra was never challenge anyone, never criticise anyone, Jesus insisted that his disciples be increasingly discriminating, discerning about who they follow, about who they admire, about who they emulate and who they listen to. And sadly, the tale is told again and again of believers who fail to be on guard against those who pervert the truth of the word of God or those who fall for the ever-appealing practice of the Pharisees with their all-you-have-to-do-is-look-good-on-the-outside-and-look-down-on-others approach. Because that's what Pharisees said. Just externals. And we're better than everyone else. And so as we note, as we jump ahead a little to verses 11 and 12, that Jesus reiterated this warning, aiming by repetition and by emphasis to get through to the disciples this point that the teaching of the Pharisees was not just wrong, it was spiritually deadly. Calvin says here, all those are to be rejected who mix inventions with the word of God or who impart something alien, however honourable, their rank or their title. And in particular, he warned his disciples against the kind of errors that these two groups who had come together in this way to trap him would bring. The Pharisees in their outward perfectionism who tended to undercut God's law by adding traditions of men, reducing true obedience to God to mere ceremony and outward form. While the Sadducees had so watered down the truth in their attempt to keep pure that they denied much of the scriptures and in doing so lost much of the important truths of the faith. And so Jesus said not only to them but to you and to me that as believers we must take care not to dabble in unsound spiritual teaching because it has adverse spiritual consequences that last not just for now but for all eternity. G. Campbell Morgan once said, Unbelief is not a failure in intellectual apprehension or understanding. It is disobedience to the clear commands of God. That's what Jesus is warning his disciples here, not to take in the teaching of these men, no matter how venerated and revered they were. For they were blind guides leading their hearers to apostasy. And that message needs to be sounded again in this day, doesn't it? For if he had to warn, Jesus had to warn these followers of his upon whom he was going to found his worldwide mission, then how much more is the same warning applicable to us? Especially as we hear Paul say in 2 Timothy 3, that in the last days, such apostasy and such rebellion against the truth and denial of the truth will characterise these times. 
And so the call is underlined to hold fast to the truth in a time of growing unbelief. And then thirdly, after warning the disciples about blind guides, we jump back to verses 8 to 10 and we see here that Jesus had to reprimand his disciples about lacking faith. Now I've already mentioned that the disciples hadn't grasped what Jesus meant when he introduced the subject of leaven and how they thought that he'd been referring to the fact that they'd forgotten to buy any bread for the trip. Now, it would be very easy for us to draw some wrong conclusions here. It would be wrong for us to conclude that Jesus was uncaring and unkind to his disciples because they weren't on the same wavelength as he was. But he wasn't uncaring and he wasn't unkind. And I and maybe you can find some relief in that. For just as much as the disciples are sometimes slow to catch on to what Jesus is saying, we don't find him ever rebuking them for their slowness. And that's great news. Because if that's how he treated them, then we can surely assume from that, because he is the same yesterday, today and forever, that that's how he treats you too when you are slow to catch on what he's on about. So what was it about their answer that caused Jesus to reprimand them gently? Well, it had to do with the repetition of the miracles of the feeding. First the 5,000 people and then, as we've just saw two weeks ago, the 4,000 people. And how both times in completing this miracle, there had been multiple baskets of leftovers for them and seconds for all who wanted them. See, Jesus had heard their discussion about bread and he knew that they had failed to learn the lesson that he wanted to teach them. Because if they'd learned it, they would never have any reason even to think about having no bread, let alone let that fact escape their lips. So his reprimand was based on not that they misunderstood what he said, but their lack of faith in him. We know this because in his reply to them about bread, he reminded them that they should have known that he could do anything. He could make bread appear if he wanted it to. If they wanted bread in the boat, he could do anything. He could provide their every need. And so by saying and reprimanding them as men of little faith, he put his finger on the sore spot and the band-aid on the sore as well. For it seems that despite their best intentions the leaven of the Pharisees had already begun to be at work in them. Their unbelief had already begun to blind them to clear signs they ought to have noted that he was the Messiah, that he could make bread appear. They still had in their minds this worry about their temporal needs. They'd failed to connect the dots about what happened right before their eyes. 
So this was a rebuke to them to wake up from their spiritual slumber to understand the times, the signs, so that they didn't become as blind as the religious leaders who were stupidly asking him for a sign. All they had to to do, all they needed to do, was to see in him that all their needs could be met and trust him for those needs. A couple of applications follow. For a start, let's note it was not a lack of evidence that was keeping these Jews from faith in him. Nor was it a lack of miracles and signs. What more could Jesus have done? If they hadn't believed in him when they saw the miracles he'd already done this far in Matthew's Gospel, why would they now believe if he acted like a a magician and produced another miracle on the spot? No, the evidence had already been given in Jesus' mind. The problem was not a lack of evidence to support his claim. The problem is with their blind and hardened hearts, blinded by sin and unbelief, and this was keeping them from wanting to bow the knee before him and confess him as Lord. The problem is not the absence of data. The problem was that they didn't want to see the data They didn't want to see the truth. They didn't want to believe the truth. This is surely underlined by the fact that these were not ignorant or unlearned men that Jesus spoke to. They were men who knew and studied the scripture since childhood. They were clever enough to have wisdom about what they saw in the realm of nature and particularly in the weather, but none of that transferred to the realm of the spiritual. One commentator said here, in asking for a sign from heaven, these men did not realise that the sign from heaven was standing right in front of them. And surely this is a fearful warning to us about the dangers of unbelief in the face of the evidence of rejecting the light of God's two great witnesses in this world. On the one hand, that of natural revelation seen in the created order which testifies to his reality. And on the other hand, that of special revelation, that which we have in the scriptures which testifies to what he has done and what he is like and how we can find him. These things are clear. And then there's that which we learn from the twelve. And all I can add here is this, that isn't it encouraging that we can be so much like they were or they are so much like we are Are you perhaps slow to catch on? Slow to to believe? Slow to have the penny drop and the lights flash? I am. I'll confess that freely. And most likely you'll agree, not about me, but about you. 
But one thing we see is surely that he is a tender teacher and a master, a tender master to his own. Never once did he rebuke his disciples for not understanding him adequately. And he didn't do that because he hadn't come to be served by them. Even as their king, and as that king, he would serve them to the point of death. He wasn't in this for what he could get out of them. He was there for them and to give his life for them. I'm not a fan of American football. But I note that Christians in the US arranged an ad that was aired during the halftime break at the Super Bowl in February this year. This is the slogan that they used. And though it doesn't say it all, it does give encouragement to those who often don't get Jesus. It said simply, after a series of things about Jesus, he gets us. A reminder that in Jesus we have a saviour who gets us even if we don't always get him. But the slogan itself needs a bit more, doesn't it? I think. Don't you think? I would have added another line to make it, he gets us, so make sure you get him. It's great to know that he understands our failings when it comes to faith. But such failings can be deadly and can't continue. So if you haven't yet put your hope in him, then now is the time to do it. For next week we'll see that in bright focus when Jesus turns to the twelve and says, What about you? Who do you say that I am? Let's hear his word. Let's find the solid ground. Let's not be like the Pharisees and be quick to hear and quick to believe. Because Jesus stood for something and that something is far too important to ignore and overlook. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that we are often like the disciples on the wrong wavelength, missing entirely what Jesus was about, as were the Pharisees and Sadducees who were on a completely different planet, it seems, wanting to disprove him We're mindful of his tender care of his disciples, that he didn't rebuke them for being slow to understand, but he did reprimand them for being slow to believe. Please rid us of the influence of religious leaders who thought that externals were the only thing that was needed and who missed the point of what it means to respond to him. Please help us to respond in the right way so that our 
hope and trust is built on something solid, not something that we've made up. Thank you that you get us. Please help us to get you and act upon what you've said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.